Hey guys, welcome to the show. Before we begin, I'd like to let you know that you can find us on Twitter at ICGAW is our handle. That's ICGAW. You can also email us at ickgawpod at gmail.com. Today we'll be talking about a couple questions that were emailed in and tweeted in, and we'll be talking about those further out this season as well. So feel free to tweet them in and email them in. Join us, uh, join us in the conversation, and I will put all of that information in the show notes. In the meantime, feel free to tell your friends to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. All right, here we go. What's up, guys? Welcome to It Can't Get Any Worse, America's Worst Podcast for America's Worst Hockey Team. I'm your host, Jay, and on today's show, we'll be discussing the evolving role of analytics in the sport that we love, Um, also kind of pairing that with a mailbag item that was emailed in. And in part two, we'll be recapping the Sabres' last few fixtures as they finally snapped their five-game winning streak, and we'll be looking ahead to games against the Yotes, Capitals, and Bruins, and we'll finish the show talking about what's going on down the road in Rochester, around town in the league, and actually we'll be handling the mailbag throughout that, so we won't end today's show with a mailbag, but you'll still get a little bit of a taste. If you enjoy today's show, we would so appreciate it if you would drop us a five-star review on iTunes. We so appreciate the support and kind words. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at ickgaw. You can also email in your questions as well. Here we go, moving on to part one with What Are You Reading, where we talk about some sort of piece that was written about hockey or the NHL or something related to sports. And this actually complements a mailbag sending in from Yanni. And Yanni opens up talking about how much he likes the show, but he moves on to say, As a Leafs fan, I cannot tell you how excited I am to see the Sabres finally doing well again. Others have said it, but hockey is at its best when Buffalo is competitive. You guys have such a fantastic market for the sport. Of course, as a Leafs fan, I am incredibly excited for both of our teams to be competitive once again. It's been a long time since our teams have had a chance to have a true rivalry that means something, and I could not be more excited to see where it goes over the next few years. The fact that our teams both ended up with elite American centers who both played together at the USNTDP should help with that, of course. And he continues to say, I'm curious about what your views are regarding analytics in hockey, especially when it comes to evaluating players on the Sabres. I'm a huge stats nerd, so I was happy to hear you refer to how strong Darlene has been, according to some shot metrics in the last show, and your description of the Sabres' win streak being lucky was basically a textbook definition of a PDO bender. I ask because you seem to blend some of these new ideas with a bit of a more classic, accessible hockey viewpoint on your show, bringing up the stats in a very casual manner and not basing your show around them, which is a unique approach and one that I enjoy. I'm very much looking forward to the game tonight and, of course, seeing how the Risto-Kadri rivalry escalates this time, hopefully safely. Keep up the great work. Best. Yanni. So Yanni, thank you so much for your email. Obviously, that was one that came in on the day of the Leafs-Sabres game that we'll be talking about later in the show. But I actually read this email and an article um, from The Athletic on the same day. And I felt like they kind of complemented each other very well. And I kind of wanted to talk about them together. This one is coming from Tyler Dello on December 5th, and it's on The Athletic. And it is titled, oh, should probably look that up, right? Dello, the next generation of data will drastically change our perception of players and how organizations operate. So Dello opens up by discussing one of his favorite reads. It's Travis Sawchick's Big Data Baseball, Math, Miracles, and the End of a 20-Year Losing Streak. And the book describes the Pittsburgh Penguins' extensive use of analytics to end their 20-year streak of a lose, of consecutive losing seasons. Dello acknowledges that baseball has always lent itself toward the use of analytics. 
the constant stop-start function of the game from innings to outs to pitches constantly allows teams to analyze so many different scenarios. And obviously, hockey doesn't work like that. And the only real stat that we've had for years is just goals and points, which Dello likens to runs and RBIs. They're more of like awards that you hand out afterwards after a game, but they don't provide much in terms of predicting your next game or informing your game plan for your next outing. It just sort of shows you, all right, who is putting points on the board? And it's just who... For hockey, it's just who of the the last three guys were the last to touch the puck before you scored. We also in hockey have plus minus, but that isn't the greatest indicator either as players could be on the ice for a goal scored or conceded despite never actually contributing to any aspect of the play. If a defenseman skates hit the ice a second before a puck is scored, that registers as his plus or minus regardless of the fact of that, that he had zero impact on the play. Shot attempt data like Corsi is the next step, and it's definitely an improvement on plus minus goals and assists, but it's still limited as it's not an indicator of where players were situated or how they played tactically or in terms of formational or formational positioning. It just records the shots for and against while players are on the ice and with other players and puts it into a very simple metric. Dello compares the possession stats to slugging on base percentage. It's better than goals and assists and RBIs, but it's still limited. He goes on to quote, or sorry, I'm going to go on to quote him. He goes on to state, When Major League Baseball began transitioning to a more sophisticated player tracking in the middle of the last decade, it pushed the analysis that could be performed a step further. Teams and analysts could now move beyond looking at outcomes of at-bats to looking at the processes that led to these outcomes. These new avenues of analysis played a significant role in the story that Sawchick told in Big Data Baseball, as the Pirates used data to drive decision-making on defensive shifts, acquiring players who had skills that weren't properly valued, like Russell Martin, and acquiring pitchers who had skills that could be identified but who hadn't been achieving results commensurate to those skills. Those pitchers also suddenly got the benefit of one of the better pitch-framing catchers in baseball. Obviously, those are some baseball items, and I'm not particularly in tune with the history of the Pirates, but this team was able to use analytics to dig themselves out of a hole, acquiring players that no one would have thought to acquire previously. Going back to hockey here, and that lack of a stop-start style, and that kind of hinders a team's ability to analyze these sorts of situations. Corsi and player movement tracking are a step forward. They provide a significantly increased look at how well teams and certain players are playing compared to a simple plus-minus, but they are limited to human observation, and they take a lot of work to assemble. If you think about it, the game never stops. So you need to have a team of people analyzing where all of the players are on the ice and what happens statistically during that time on the ice. And in the meantime, cross-analysis of possession stats and positioning stats would seem to be very prone to human error and also a limited pool of data. So you'd be asking questions about like what was the team doing differently during these periods? How was the team set up defensively, offensively? None of these are recorded while Corsi is recorded, probably because doing so would require an immense amount of work, which Dello moves on to discuss, and how the league has recently been warming to the idea of a digital player and puck tracking system, which would involve placing computer chips in the pucks and somewhere on the players in order to track their positioning on the ice. Dello states, What a system like this will generate is a file telling you where every player on the ice was located at various points in the game. If it recorded player puck positions 20 times per second, and it was one of those increasingly frequent Maple Leafs games in which nobody gets a power play, you'd end up with 20 data points per second times 3,600 seconds, 13 players and a puck equals 9,000, uh, sorry, oh, I can't even say this number, it's so big, 936,000 lines of data about a game. The current play-by-play files are usually around 300 lines, so that's a bit of a difference. 
And Della moves on to discuss that the, the effects of data like that could be limitless. And it seems like the only thing that could limit teams' use of that data would be their own willingness to commit to its use. It could impact game preparation. Watching video and drawing conclusions takes time, and usually coaches don't have time to do that during a run of games. So this data would allow a team's analysis crew to assess the data and give coaches dossiers on upcoming games with their opponents' trends, strengths, weaknesses, and it would, it would involve less time for coaches in watch, watch uh, I can't speak, watching and processing and more time for looking for solutions for their next game. It might also, interestingly enough, affect salary dispensation. It's really hard in our current model of the sport to figure out which players are actually really great on their own. And Dello specifically cites that every player Nicholas Lindstrom ever played with posted great numbers. But were they actually great? And we saw on our own team this summer with Ryan O'Reilly, his numbers last season were okay, but they weren't amazing. But we and the rest of the league used the caveat that he'd been playing on America's worst hockey team. This quality of data would enable teams to figure out and be better informed on which players were actually impressive despite their circumstances and weren't just benefiting from having better players around them. And so with this kind of data, we might have been able to figure out that Ryan O'Reilly actually was an extremely valuable player despite the fact that his points were rather average. It could also affect fans that are going to look at middle-of-the-road players rather differently because they might not be seen as middle-of-the-road players anymore if teams can use this data to figure out ways to maximize their potential. Dello goes on to finish, and I will provide a lengthy quote for that finish. He says, In order for all of this to take place, there's going to be some changes in how front offices and coaching staffs operate. There's a saying that you don't hear around hockey. Managers manage, coaches coach, and players play. This doesn't really make a ton of sense, even without really good data. If the manager builds a team in a certain way, how does it make sense to have a coach who may want to run it in another way? If a coach or a player has insights that can be used by the front office in modeling how the game works, why not draw on them? One of the themes running through big data bas- baseball as well as any discussion on successful Major League Baseball teams these days, is how collaborative the front office, coaching staff, and analytics departments have become. Hockey's historic model of a general manager who builds a team and hands the keys over to the coach will lose out to teams that adapt a more collaborative approach in order to maximize the value of new information that's available to them. If what we've seen in baseball is any example, it's going to be an exciting time to be a hockey fan because teams are going to experiment a lot. New ideas playing out in the ice and in the front office means more content for followers of the game to watch and consider and debate. That part of hockey, at least, won't change. So I have a couple thoughts on this matter. Obviously, as Dello discusses at the end of his article, this is going to change the way that teams operate. But I I have questions about whether or not it would affect the casual fans' understanding of the game. One thing uh, Dello never addresses here is whether or not any of this data would and tracking information would be made public or if it would just be something that franchises were privy to and had the information on. Um, I don't know that the average casual fan, even if they had access to this kind of information, would look at the game differently. However, there are some stats enthusiasts that are going to go crazy if this data is made public. It also just might be too much, I think, for the average fan. I like looking at possession stats and forming opinions on players from that data, but I don't love hockey for that type of information. I love hockey for the game and the personas and above all else, the stories. Numbers contribute parts of that or part or two parts of that, but only in small complementary fashions. I'm really excited to see where this information goes and if it's something that the NHL continues to pursue, but I'm not exactly dying to see the information myself. Um, to go back to Yanni's question about like, you know, do I 
Um, what was his specific question? I want to take his his wording here. Curious about your views are regarding analytics in hockey, especially when it comes to evaluating players on the Sabres. I'll be honest, Yanni, I don't go out of my way to find information. It's usually just stuff that I I I capture or or find in as I'm viewing other hockey content, either as I'm scrolling through Twitter and I have a couple of good finds on Twitter who tweet a lot of stats, or I'll be cruising through stuff on the athletic and I'll go on a deep dive of, you know, the Sabres power play stats or something of that, that line. Um, but really it's just in what I encounter through other hockey means. I usually don't find myself outwardly looking to like find this data myself and, um, but I do love encountering it and having it being a conversational piece when I'm talking hockey with other people. Um, Yanni, I want to thank you for your question, but I also want to talk about that Leafs rivalry. We'll talk about the Leafs game in a second, but I too am so excited to see this Leafs rivalry hopefully develop into something that's going to be a staple of the NHL for the next 10 years. I mean, having a cross-the-pond rivalry where fans of both teams can hop in the car, hop across the border, and be in the opposing city in just a couple of hours, I think is going to be incredible. I think having two American talents as the faces of those franchises is also going to be incredible. I mean, two teams, uh, the Leafs definitely rose to power quite faster than the Sabres did, um, but I think the Sabres are coming, and if we end up with two powerhouse teams in the NHL over the next five to 10 years, I think it's going to be an incredible thing to watch. And I am so happy to, to, to be able to, to witness this and watch this. I'm really hoping, really dying to get to a Leafs game at some point this season, but we'll see uh, what we can make happen. Yanni, thank you so much for your question. Folks, remember you can email us and tweet us. All that information has been mentioned a bunch of times. I'll just put it in the show notes at this point. We're going to move on to part two. All right, guys, moving on to part two, where we're going to be talking about the Sabres' last four outings. And up first, we are talking about the Sabres' trip to end their little road trip at Nashville on Monday. And a couple bits of team news for this one. Scandala was sent home on this road trip to be evaluated. It's still related to that ankle issue, and he's still out as far as we know. Palmer was out of this one as well assumed to be related to a bit of a nasty boarding hit that he took during the Florida game. Sherry, McCabe, and Risto were all declared possibilities for the game, but only Risto actually made it to the lineup. I want to complain about that, but Nashville were rocked with injuries as well with Subban, Arvidsson, Turris, and Forsberg all on the IR. So a little bit of a makeshift lineup coming in. We've got Skinner, Eichel, Reinhardt, Thompson, Middlestad, Akposo, Eli, Rodriguez, Sabotka, Berglund, Larson, Giergensens. That bottom six is pretty devoid of creativity, which is going to be a common theme that we are going to discuss. It's uh, Darlene Bogosian, Pilot Ristolainen, and Bolu Nelson, and it's Hutton in net. And into the first, there's nothing of real note during the first 10, but definitely the better chances in possession fall to the Preds, who led the shot 6-2. to two. But the Sabres looked fast and potent in transition, and they looked to change the makeup of the game on power play as Reinhardt drew a holding call off Salamanke. It was Eichel, Skinner, Reinhardt, Akposo, and Ristolainen out on the power play, but the team really struggled to, to establish possession. The B team actually featuring uh, Middlestat, Rodriguez, Tage Thompson, Berglund, and Darlene was strangely effective. They didn't have any goals, obviously, but no, but a couple shots. And the advantage shifted shortly afterwards. Bolu went to the box for tripping, and the Sabres' PK had struggled recently. They conceded two a few nights earlier, but the Preds' power play really hadn't been much to write home about. Hutton was required for a few steady saves just past the middle mark. Um, someone came over the line. I can't remember who it was. I was supposed to look it up. Um, and feeds Yossi. He feeds Ryan Ellis and Ryan Ellis's beautiful beard. Ellis blasts one over Hutton on a one-timer, and it gets a whole lot harder for the Sabres with three minutes remaining. 
Um, here is a stat courtesy of John Vogel of The Athletic. The Sabres have given up power play goals in four straight games and five of their last six. Penalty kill is struggling recently. It's complemented by a power play that is struggling recently as well. Ten, the first, we did get a little bit of a treat and something you probably won't see again this season. Casey Middlestat came around the back of the net and absolutely leveled Dan Hamoyce, uh, trying to generate some momentum. We go into the second, and the Sabres get another power play look as Erod got tripped going to the net. That one's blanked too, but it looked quite a bit more fruitful than the first outing, despite no goals. 15 minutes in, shortly after that power play, Reinhardt fee, uh, fans on a feed from Eichel across the front of the net. He recovers and gets it to Skinner, who has to battle to get a shot on net. When he does, Reinhardt, who has moved to the front of the net, gets a backhander on Rene's pad. Eichel gets a rebound. Rene saves, and by the end of the scrum, it's in the back of the net, and Skinner is celebrating. After all that madness, the replay actually gave it to Sam, as Roman Yossi is the one to kick it in the back of the net rather than Skinner, and Sam is actually the one, the last one to touch it. About 10 minutes through this one, the Sabres outshooting the Preds 8-2 on this period, so it's a period that has definitely shifted in terms of dominance in the way of the Sabres. Um, this one, barring a few chances, it's all Buffalo. Sabres get another chance on the power play as Austin Watson goes to the box on a hooking call, but the Sabres fail really to get into the zone. It's another dud. Three minutes remaining from that, the Preds turn the tables and come back the other way. This one actually starts from a rough Darlene turnover that while the Sabres actually did recover possession, they never actually officially established some sort of comfort with it. Preds take it back, Fiala takes a shot, and it actually hits Nelson's stick and then Hutton's stick and hits the high corner of the net for Fiala's fifth of the year. Oh well. Turns again as Erod draws another tripping call. This time it's Ryan Hartman to the box. Nothing major really generated, and Skinner took a really stupid slashing penalty to end the power play. Savers survive a dicey Risto turnover in front. Hutton had to make a great save to stop it from going 3-1, but it's 2-1 going through 2. And the third period, I'm going to be perfectly honest, doesn't have much to discuss. Really, the only pertinent item came from Kylock Poso, who took a nasty hit on the boards that wasn't called. Given it, I'm not really mad about the hit, but I'm just worried about his history of concussions, and we can be thankful that he appears to be okay. Sabres outshot the Preds in the third and were able to make things look a tad more even, but the Preds can shut you down without even thinking about it. Sabres couldn't capitalize on the chances that they were able to generate. This one ends 2-1, and it's a three-game losing streak. I've got two points from this one. Um, point one... Those games were a lot of fun, but this run afterwards is showing you just how far the Sabres have to go to be a dominant team in this league. That's a Nashville team that is rocked with injuries, and they shut down the Sabres without even blinking in the third. And let's be perfectly honest, the Sabres are an average team, and that's exciting for us because we're used to rooting for a very, very bad team, and average is fun, and average is okay, and average is better. Average is the Sabres, but when we play teams like the Nashville Predators, things like this might happen. We might have a very even, maybe a game that we're slightly behind that we never really get a chance to finish and win because teams can shut down an average team like the Sabres if they are an impressive team of Nashville's caliber. Point two. The power play needs attention, and we're going to talk about this a couple times throughout this next run of games. Uh, they went 0 for 4 this night, and it's a developing into a common theme. They are just okay on the power play with their 18.3% after this game being good for 20th in the league. It didn't get much better by the end of this four-game stretch. Um, Ryan Stimson of, of The Athletic has a great dive into Eichel's use on the power play and how he's typically not in a good enough position to score. Like we all love to watch that player drop a one-timer from the point. Like you know who we're talking about, your Ovechkins, your Stamkoses. But the stat dive that Stimson shows actually shows that those teams 
actually struggle on the power play more than teams like Toronto, who don't quite have that classic bomber from the point, but have more technicians. And really, I think what we're seeing is the 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 stat or the 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 item that Stimson discusses is that Eichel takes his shots from too far away. They're not effective scoring positions when he gets his one-timers. But the other item is that like those one-timers just waste possession. It's really difficult to recover possession when you miss a one-timer. If you don't score, you're probably losing possession. And we're going to talk about that more as the we, we saw a new-look power play by the end of this that we'll get to. But this one ends 2-1. We end up in a difficult back-to-back against Toronto the next night in Buffalo. Uh, lineup stuff, Allmark's in goal, Sherry is back, McCabe is left to a game-time decision, and Palmer is listed day-to-day, but it ends up being roughly the same lineup as before. Sherry comes in for Eli, Thompson drops to the third line to accommodate Sherry as he pa- uh, pairs with Middlestat and Akposo. And the first 10 in this one sees the Sabres jump out to early periods of pressure. The game plan is clearly to keep Toronto in their end. And even if the Sabres don't really create a whole lot of meaningful chances, they're still stopping Toronto from creating much of anything. But on the odd creating, Anderson and Allmark pull off some quick, amazing saves, and the Leafs are so threatening with their speed coming the other way to cause problems when the Sabres lose track of it. But the Sabres are out shooting 9-3 through the first 10. The good is that the Sabres are rocking through the opening 10. The bad, there are so many Leafs fans here, and I am so tired of seeing that in Buffalo games. The ugly, Casey Nelson hurt his arm or his shoulder or something else upper body with about seven minutes left, and he left the ice. Second 10 looks largely the same. Major items of note involved Ristolainen pulling out one of, like all of the moves, trying to top his highlight reel goal against the Sharks from a couple weeks ago. One of them saw him dangle through four Leafs to the net, but he was robbed by Freddie Anderson's glove. The other saw him try another ridiculous through-the-legs move, but this one was on the doorstep, and his shot... Um, goes through the legs, but he couldn't quite lift it away from Freddie on that one. Leafs do get some decent opportunities, especially right at the end of the period through Tavares, but it's 0-0 through 1 with 14-7 in the shots in favor of the Sabres. Maybe the worst part about this is that we have to listen to Mike Milbury on the break. This game, watching this game and then having to listen to NBC analyst was like watching Breaking Bad and then somewhere in the middle of the episode pausing to stare at tortilla chips. It was, I just I cannot stand NBC broadcasts and I always miss our MSG crew when when we end up on the NBC um, NBC broadcasts. Into the second, there's some good news. Casey Nelson does come back for a couple minutes. The better news is that Darlene has continued some tidy periods of play and is growing more and more into the game with exceptional skating and breakout passes. The weird news is that the NBC broadcast team is really weird about Darlene. And the tweet of the night comes from Dmitry Filipovich. Here's his tweet. Even by his regular standards, Pierre Maguire is being extra weird about the fact that Rasmus Darlene is only 18 years old. And another weird line from that point is like Pierre, um, Pierre Maguire is constantly, constantly mentioning the fact that Rasmus Dahlin is 18 years old. And one of his weirdest lines was, check the birth certificate, please. Going back to real talk, though, Allmark is the hero of the game so far. The, the Sabres, despite some good hustling and harrying, are letting the wrong guys get the right looks. Allmark denied Tavares no less than five times. There were also some good ones from Matthews and Kadri. It it needed to be cleaner. You can't give the team those sorts of chances, and we saw that happen. A um, couple minutes remaining in the second. Austin Matthews floats behind the net. He leaps into the air and gloves a puck down to himself. Bolu's right next to him and had no idea where the puck was or what has gone on. Matthews basically snatched it from right over his head. A second later, probably less, he's wrapped it around and backhanded it into the goal, and it was that fast. Probably from the puck, the time when he grabbed the puck out of the air to the time that the goal or the puck was in the goal was maybe less than a second. And from there, it's all Leafs. They're awake now. Sabres survive and go onto the power play as Larson draws a 
pretty weak interference call from Connor Brown, for being honest. Sabres power play has been dreadful the last few games. Now would be a good time for them to show up, but never mind. Risto breaks a stick, and Thompson has to hook Marner coming back on the breakaway. So much for that. It's 4-4. Nelson did come back for six seconds, says nah, and then returns back to the locker room. Um, with 5.59 remaining, Sabres win an offensive draw, and Bolu and Risto exchange passes. Bolu wrists one, Anderson is screened, and it goes in 1-1. Replays actually show that Sam Reinhardt got the subtlest touch on it before it goes in. Go team. That's four straight games with a goal for Sam Reinhardt. So much for slow starts for him. Erod goes to the net and gets tripped, but there's no call. Jack gets slashed four times by Marlowe and then gets boarded by him on a late hit. No call. Whatever. Sabres are still hanging in and making some good moves, and there are those odd chances that are still falling to the Leafs, and they capitalize again. Sabres have possession in the offensive zone, and the fourth line turns it over. They're too slow, and it goes across the front from Marner. Tavares drags Allmark with him, going across the net, and then makes a great move, tees up Jake Gardner as he's coming in. He deposits it into a relatively empty net, and it's 2-1 to end the second horribly deflating. The Sabres are out shooting 27-16, but they end this period down 2-1. In the third, things get off to a great start as Eichel hurts himself while forechecking Zaitsev, but he returns a minute later and the NBC guys are so worried. Why is Jack Eichel not taking this face off? Look, he's clearly in, he's clearly injured. Skinner is taking this face off, except that Eichel never almost never takes face-offs on the left-hand side. Skinner always takes those so that Eichel has an opportunity to shoot as a righty. And at the end of this play, when the puck ends up in the back of the net, the NBC guys are just flabbergasted. Like, oh, clearly that was why Eichel was not taking the power play. Like, yeah, duh, guys, great research. But at any rate, Eichel's back. He's on the receiving end of a fantastic wrist align and cross-ice pass. Risto pauses on it for just a second, and then puts it right across the front from the point. Eichel really only needs to slide it into a relatively open net, but he blasts it for good measure and raises his arms for the crowd in this kind of gladiator style, are you not entertained, cheering. Shortly afterwards, the Sabres have to kill as TT gets nailed on a hooking call. That's cool. The dudes are strong for a minute, but then Bogo makes a good play to draw an interference call on Marlowe. They play four on four for a while, and just as it shifts to the man advantage, Tavares gets free all alone, and Linus denies him with the glove. Brilliant moment in a critical time. Sabres don't generate much. Toronto kills. And then it's a period of Toronto possession, and this game is just wildly entertaining. They play... For a few more minutes, and Reinhardt robs Kadri on the defensive end and feeds Jack Eichel. Jack Eichel's weaving through a few defenders, and he whips one through Anderson. What's better than a go-ahead goal against the Leafs? Watching Jack Eichel celebrate against Leafs fans against the boards again. What's better than watching Jack Eichel celebrate against Leafs fans against the boards? Watching Nazem Kadri have a little meltdown on the bench because it's his fault. Here we go. Sabres are trying to defend their lead, but it doesn't last very long, if we're being perfectly honest. A shot comes in from behind the boards from Riley. It comes around the other side perfectly to Marlowe, who is waiting there on the other side of the goal. He deposits it into another relatively empty net behind a committed Allmark. It's a little dicey, but it ends at that, and we go to OT. Late play of the the game goes to Lawrence Pilot who put on a great block on Marner as he was coming in in transition at a crucial moment. Sabres get a point, but they're looking to avoid that four-game losing streak. And they roll out in overtime with Eichel, Darlene, and Connor Sherry. And it's all Sabres for most of this entire time of possession. And But it goes a pretty long time. Um, but it ends. we end up with a line of Bogo, Sam, and Jack. They all draw great saves, and it's just like that second period. Unfortunately, Sabres are looking really good. They turn it over, and the Leafs come back the other way. Kapanen drops it for Matthews for a world-class snapshot. It's an amazing goal, and the Sabres lose 4-3 in overtime. A couple points from this one. 
Lawrence Pilot wasn't really noticeable in his previous outings, but you noticed him tonight. He had an excellent attempt to set up an Erod chance at one point. He had a great last-second play to, uh, to save the game in the third. And you look at his total ice time from his first three NHL games. Game one was against the Panthers, and he played 12 minutes and 48 seconds. Game two was Monday night against Nashville, and he played 19 minutes and 8 seconds. Game three was against Toronto, and he played 22 minutes and 49 seconds. 22 minutes and 49 seconds in your third NHL game. He played 948 against Austin Matthews tonight at 5v5 and had 13 shots for and four against for a 61% Corsi on the night. That's all uh, courtesy of natural stat trick. He doesn't deserve to go down, and we'll talk about this multiple times, um, but if he stays, Risto, Dahlin, McCabe, Bogosian, Scandella, Nelson, Beaulieu, Pilot, and now Hunwick is healthy. Something's going to have to change, and that's going to be a point that we're going to talk about a couple times later in this episode as well, is that there's a logjam, and all of these guys, with the exception of Lawrence Pilot, who's playing really well, are not waivers exempt. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Point two from this one, the Sabres can hang in these games, but it's not because of their talent. They were out, or sorry, the Sabres outworked this team the entire game. They made a few mistakes, and they were punished on almost all of them, which is maybe the opposite of what it was a common theme on the win streak. They didn't lose on those mistakes on the win streak. It's not that they didn't make them. They just didn't lose on them. And the change here is that they were making errors and allowing chances for Tavares, Matthews, and Marner. You can't do that. And this team didn't even have William Nylander in it yet. He signed his new contract, but he did not feature in this game. One thing I'm a little grumpy about, though, is that Austin Matthews was the talk of the NBC broadcast after the game, and they almost completely forgot that Jack Eichel also had two goals. And I'm going to put out a hot take here that I think Jack Eichel was far better and more influential in this game than Matthews. Yes, Austin Matthews had two amazing world-class plays. One of them was the game winner. But he wasn't the most visible player through most stretches of this game other than those two amazing moments. I thought Jack Eichel had a far more dominant performance in this game. But at the end of the day, the Sabres are 0-2-2 on this stretch, and those two regulation losses were one-goal games. So two overtime losses and two one-goal games, that's a significant improvement from the beginning of the year where they were either winning close games or getting blown out. So across this four-game stretch, are we grumpy? Certainly. Are we mad? I don't know that we have a right to be. like this, 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 What we saw this game, a little bit of stutter there, sorry. What we saw this game, the Sabres are coming. All right, They're not here yet, but they're coming. Point three, I forgot how much I hate the Leafs. <laughs> I spent most of this year admiring their offensive talent and enjoying watching them play. I got sucked into the narratives of the Nylander contract issues. I'm, I'm open about my love affair for Austin Matthews. I think he's one of the coolest players in the league, but that Marlowe moment with the four slashes and knocking Jack Eichel into the boards really set me off. And that wasn't even perpetrated by a character who was widely despised. Like it wasn't even Nazem Kadri. It was Patrick Marlowe, one of the most beloved players in the league. But I hate that Leafs fans flood the Sabres arena on game day. I hate that that didn't happen when the Leafs were bad and that they're fair weather fans that didn't flock over the border when they were the worst team in the league. And my quiet little love affair is over. I hope all the Leafs fans got stopped for massive traffic for a long time at the border. I hope they have to listen to Mike Milbury talk about their team for every game of the rest of this season. And look, one thing I am happy about I love that this rivalry is alive. As we talked about with Yanni's email earlier, I'm so excited that these two teams are going to be good for hopefully the next five to 10 years. And one thing that was funny kind of inter- and kind of interesting to compliment that at the end of this game, if the season had ended there, the Sabres and Leafs would have been matched up in the playoffs. 
And how incredible would that be to see? Watch watch that game over a seven-game series. That would have been absolutely incredible. Moving on, we're going to talk about two games, and my analysis of these two games will be quite a bit shorter than the other two. One is because I was actually in Philadelphia on Saturday when the Flyers were in Buffalo. Um, So I could not watch this game. I was attending the Army-Navy game in Philadelphia, which was an amazing experience. If you ever get the opportunity to go to that, I highly recommend that you go and check that out. Just an amazing event um, watching Army football and Navy football play. But I couldn't couldn't watch this one. Um, Quick little team news items. Wedgwood was called up along with Matt Tennyson. That was because Carter Hutton has been dealing with a little bit of an injury. On the opposite side, Shane Gothespear didn't make it for this one. I think he's dealing with a lower body injury. Lineups are largely the same outside of that. There is a, um, or sorry, Linus Allmark is in net. And quick little recap of this one. Four minutes in, Eichel came over the line with defenders just trailing in his wake. Flying over the line with great speed, he rifles one off the post past Stolarz to make it one nothing and getting the Buffalo fans out of their seats. In between the Sabres' first and the second, we got to mention that Tage Thompson had a highlight reel moment of the game and was denied a goal-of-the-season candidate by Stolarz. He toe-dragged past one defender, slipped it through another one, um, and but could not really challenge the goaltender on the back end. Eight minutes remaining in the period, Pilot is shifting back and forth on the line. He drops one from the point, and Jack has an incredible tip off the side of the net. He deflects it behind Stolarz, and it's 2-0. Right afterwards, the Flyers win an offensive faceoff through Giroux. It falls to James Van Riemsdyk, and JVR risks one with an incredible shot through Allmark. 2-1 to end the first. Some good saves at the end from Allmark preserve the lead, but they're unable to hold it in the second as Provorov rifles one through Allmark. 2-2 going into the third, and then we won't talk much about the third. The Sabres concede four goals to Giroux. That one was shorthanded. Simmons, Weiss, and Konecki, and they fall 6-2 and are outshot 12-4 in the third. Three points from this one. This game is a perfect illustration of the secondary scoring issues in Buffalo, and we'll talk about that in our stock down portion either. But this this game featured two goals from a transcendent performance from Jack Eichel and zero help elsewhere. And if you look at the other games, that's a common theme in their success and in this game, in a game where obviously there, there was not a lot of success, there were two goals from the top line and nothing else from elsewhere. Point two, this team is really missing Jake McCabe and possibly Scandella. I don't want to rip Matt Tennyson. I don't think he's a bad player. I think he's just playing at a level he's not supposed to be playing at. And it's not so much the presence of Matt Tennyson that is hurting this team as it is the absence of the physicality and the effective two-way play of McCabe. Pilot's been really, really good since he started playing, but he's still brand new, and he doesn't bring that rumble-tumble play that McCabe brings. When you've got the ability to roll out three lines and all of them feature one of Bogosian, Ristolainen, and McCabe, and plus they're complemented with big D guys like Scandella or Casey Nelson, that's a decor that can not only play but put some hurt on some guys, and that affects games. And again, we've got to come back to, there's there's another discussion point here about what's going to happen if they all get healthy at the same time. Really, no one but Amherst fans, and I am an Amherst fan, so I don't really even know what I want at this point, wants to see Pilot come back down. But if McCabe, Scandella, Hunwick, and Nelson all come back at the same time, just sending Pilot back down won't be an acceptable solution. They're going to have to do something else, whether that's trying to squeak squeak someone through waivers or make a move and turn one of those guys into a forward. I'm, I'm not really sure um, whether it's sending send a couple of them down, trying to make a trade. I'm not sure, um, but that's something that's going to have to be looked at as well. Point three, that's five straight. And few points here and there through that with some overtime losses, but that's half of the win streak spent losing. And possibly illustrating that 
at the end of the win streak. The Sabres were a point behind Tampa. At the time of recording this one, they're nine points behind Tampa. Finally looking to turn it around, the uh, Sabres welcomed the Kings on Tuesday night. I actually went to this one, and it was... It was kind of a half-and-half game. It was largely very flat for large portions of this game, as we'll talk about as we talk about the second period. But it was also really fun to see because for a Tuesday night game, it was a loaded arena. Not quite a sellout, but a really impressive number in attendance for a Tuesday night game. Mostly the same lineup. Patrick Berglund was sick for this one, so Giergensen's returns. And into the first The Kings strike first as the puck ends up at the side of the net, and Allmark ends up on his backside as he's frantically trying to find the puck behind his back through the scrum. It finds its way out of the scrum, and it goes to Muzzin, who blasts it through traffic and over Allmark, who was still on his rear end for the 1-0 lead. Sabres do make some good chances in transition, but it's Cal Peterson all night long, who looks pretty steady and assured in a game that surely has a little bit of personal weight here. You'll remember that Cal Peterson was a Sabres prospect for a chunk of time, but he played out all of his years at Notre Dame, entered free agency, and signed with the Kings. There's maybe a little bit of poetic justice there and that the Kings will probably not be good until the tail end of his tenure there. So joke's on him, um, but he made that decision. There, there was really only a small quantity of booze throughout most of this game. I don't think people really faulted him for the decision that he made, but it was just an interesting little narrative with, you know, Cal Peterson, someone we thought was going to be the future of goaltending in Buffalo against Allmark, someone who probably is the future of goaltending in Buffalo. Um, 13 minutes in, Zemgus Giergensen chases Dowdy over the line and strips him. He steals it from him, comes through in on Peterson, and finds the far corner with a great shot to tie the game. At some point in there, Drew Dowdy took a shot to the hand and was visibly hurt. And I actually said out loud, like, wow, he's, he's a tough guy. If he's showing signs of pain, he is actually hurt. And that was true. He did not return for the rest of the game. Into the second, this was not the Sabres, period. It was totally flat. It was rather lifeless. And a minute into the second, the Kings take advantage of that and take the lead on a slightly controversial one. Matt Luff took a lofted puck down with a potentially high stick. Darlene was half complaining about it, half tracking back with him. Luff comes in, and Darlene backs off of him, and Luff lifts it over Allmark to regain the lead for L.A. Later in the second... Adrian Kempe was showing off some strength on Casey Middlestat. He comes around from the outside through the middle, wrists one, and scores. It's 3-1. Just a completely lifeless performance against really a a depleted, aging Kings side. And the Sabres exit the ice to a chorus of boos. Into the third, the Sabres have a lot of work to do. And they get an early chance to get to work on the power play. They are rolling out a new-look power play that we'll talk about in a second with Ristolainen on the point and Eichel and Darlene on the corners. It's a little goofy-looking, but anyway, seven seconds in, Risto drops one to Eichel. Eichel waits a second in possession and then wrists one over the same shoulder that Giergensen's found in the first. Four minutes later, Pilot had a little bit of a goofy one where he fanned on a shot that drew some groans. But he gets a second look, and he puts in a half-shot, half-pass to the back end. It hits a crashing Johan Larson skate, who is going to the net, and it goes... I'm sorry, it goes in the net, and it's 3-3. Sabres turned up the, uh, the pressure and see the regulation actually end on a power play. Eichel has a great battle on the boards, and with seconds remaining, draws a holding call to take the Sabres into overtime on the power play. And they roll out a lineup we've seen a few times before with Darlene, Ristolainen, Skinner, and Eichel coming out for the four-on-three. They have some good possession, and towards the very end of the power play, Eichel rockets one from that position that we've talked about. Risto either tries to backhand it through Peterson or across the front of the net to Skinner. Whatever his intention was, the latter is what happens, and Skinner smacks home his 21st of the season for the overtime win. Three points on this one. Darlene had a two-sided game for this year. He had some highlight reel, unbelievable 
skating. At one point, he spun around a defender around the own Saber, his own Sabres goal line, circled the entire ice, came around the opposite net all the way around, took a shot, and nobody ever got near him. But he also had a weirdly subpar passing and link-up play game. He struggled at some points to make some routine passes. He was not in sync with his defensive partners on several times. It caused a couple turnovers. I also want to chat that he maybe needs to work on shooting or they need to stop trying to tee him up for the one-timers on the power play. So they had that weird luck where it was Ristolainen on the point flanked by Eichel and Darlene, so Risto Risto could drop it to either of them and take that blast. And that kind of, he had a, he had a rough power play where he actually fanned on more than one shot, missed wide on two more, and lost the puck on a fifth attempt. And he ended that shift by snapping his stick and slamming the bench door in a rare display of emotion. And we'll, we'll kind of take that into point two. I don't love this power play. We talked about how teeing up players for the one-timer is typically wasteful, and here we are with this Risto on the point, Eichel and Darlene on his side, and they're trying to almost exclusively do that, and it was incredibly wasteful. Whoever it was who was on the rest of the power play, typically Skinner and Sam Reinhart, almost never had any possession on the power play. They weren't capable of doing much on the power play, Look, Kyle Ocposo is not anywhere near the player that Rasmus Dahlin is, but I almost prefer Ocposo's pass-first mentality on that right-hand side. Like, bring in something different for that right-hand side than always trying to set up one-timers. Because essentially, the only thing that Cal Peterson had to do this game on the power play was shift from side to side. And like, you know, if it's going to Eichel, go to the right. If it's going to Darlene, go to the left, because he knew the shot was coming every time that that happened. Um, look, I'm not going to say take Darlene off the power play. He certainly deserves a place on the power play, but I feel like it's wasteful to put him in this position if you also have wrist aligning on the ice. Point three, the Sabres made this game hard. Uh, this was a Kings team with no Kovalchuk, no Doughty for most of the game. They're a slow, aging team, and they were outplayed in the middle stanza and it had it had to be, as Dan Dunleavy called it, the cardiac kids making the comeback. Look, the Sabres, as we've talked about, are average. They're not going to be the team that is going to dominate games. They're building to be something like the Tampas and Torontos of the league. But Jesus, can we please at least look good against the worst team in the league? Good news on that front. They did snap their five-game winning or losing streak and are now looking to build back from that low point. Stock up, stop, stock down. We've got to talk about stock up with Lawrence Pilot. We've talked about the issues of what they're going to do with him, but he had his first two NHL points and has looked really, really good in his rather seamless transition from the AHL to the NHL. Stock down, I've got to maybe put in Linus Allmark here, and he hasn't been bad, but he's just clearly not Carter Hutton. And he's a developing player, a player we're looking to have for the future. But watching that Kings game in person, I started to realize just how impressive Carter Hutton's ability to play the puck is and how much the Sabres miss not having that capability on the back end. I kept expecting Allmark to fling the puck up the ice and restart some aspect of play, but that's not his game. And I think that affects the Sabres game plan playing from the back end when they have a player who is not capable of doing that. That, That's a subtle stock down on this one. He's made some incredible saves against the Kings, but he also had that moment where he just couldn't get off his backside to stop a relatively easy attempt from going in for the Kings first goal. So a little bit of half and half there. Major stock down on this one, however, the bottom six. In these four games, here are the goals in that stretch. Sam, Sam, Jack, 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 Jack. That's the Nashville, Toronto, and Philly games, all losses. Then, Giergensen's, Jack, Larry, Skinner. That's the LA Kings game. I mean, look at what happens when the rest of your team is able to contribute. Oh my gosh, shocker, you actually win games. And this is not a new problem 
this season. It's not a new problem in the last couple of years. And I'm starting to get a little, uh, I'm a little disappointed with Jason Bottrell that something else has not happened in this regard to try to balance out this team. I don't want to see any of the top six players go. I think you leave the top six as is. But how much longer will the tenure of Johan Larson and Zemgin Giergensen's go Zemgis Giergensen's go on? They've been better this season. I'm gonna like this is not a criticism of them, but at what point do you decide, all right, it's time to make a shift with these players and try to bring in someone else who can try to do this job just a little bit better? I don't know if I'm accurate in making that assessment, if that's something that needs to happen. Um, you guys can yell at me on Twitter if we think that there's something else that should be done. But that's just about it for part two. Join us in part three where we'll be previewing the Sabres next outings, talking about what's going on down the road in Rochester, around town in the league, and we'll be wrapping up the episode for you. See you guys in a second. All right, guys, welcome to part three, and we're going to be looking ahead at the next the Sabres' next three outings. On Thursday night, they're going to be playing at the end of their home stretch against the Arizona Coyotes. The Yotes are without Antti Ranta, who is declared out for the season with an injury. And the Yotes are 13-14-2 on this season, and they'll come in sporting their shiny new center in Nick Schmaltz. He came over in a trade with Chicago as Arizona sent Dylan Strome, their 2015 third overall pick, and Brennan Perlini the other way. Since that trade, uh, Schmaltz has gotten off the mark with a few goals. He's actually second on the Coyotes' points list with six goals and 12 assists, although most of those obviously came in Chicago. And Yotes have been hit or miss lately, and they're coming into this one on a three-game losing streak. They do, on the other hand, sport the league's best penalty kill, so I would not bank on seeing the Sabres power play come to life on this one. The Sabres will then travel to D.C. to take on the Caps, and the Caps endured a bit of a slow start this season, but they've found their mojo and are now firmly at the top of the Metro Division. Point leaders Ovechkin, uh, Ovechkin, Ovechkin and Backstrom with 39 points and 38 points respectively are obviously the ones to watch. But Tom Wilson, as I'm sure you know, might miss this one as he got clobbered by Ryan Reeves and is currently out, I think officially declared day-to-day with a concussion. Um, I was at this game last season in D.C. when the Sabres got clobbered by the Caps 5-1 or something ridiculous like that. So I'm excited to see what this new-look Sabres team can pull off at home, um, at the home, sorry, of a team trying to be back-to-back champions. And the Sabres will round out the weekend at Boston on Sunday on a back-to-back. The Bruins are hot on the tails of the Sabres, who, and they've risen to just two points behind them at the time of this recording. Uh, the Sabres' five-game losing streak kind of helped the, the Bruins whittle this one away as the Bruins have won three straight in that timeline. So this could be a hot one. They're also in a tough spot in terms of injuries. Patrice Bergeron and Zdeno Chara are both on the IR with potentially long-term injuries. But they have won those three straight. They'll play the Penguins Friday night before welcoming the Sabres to town. It's a tough back-to-back. I mean, D.C., Boston doesn't get much harder, except we we did just play um, Nashville, Toronto this past week. So difficult fixture lists coming up for the Sabres. And it's unfortunate that they're, they're slightly easier fixture lists featuring Philadelphia and the Kings really only saw them take two points out of that equation. Hopefully they're able to get something out of the Arizona game before they have to play these two difficult ones. Moving on down the road, the Amherst had for a while let their run away lead in the division slip, but they and they now have to deal with what's probably going to be the long-term absence of Lawrence Pilot as he continues to seamlessly transition uh, through the American game at the NHL level. There was an interesting narrative developing before their uh, game last Wednesday night against the Utica Comets. Jonas Johansson was called up from the Cincy Cyclones while neither Adam Wilcox nor Scott Wedgwood were injured. And there were rumors swirling around that this was some sort of message being sent um, by head coach Taylor. But 
and Johansson actually started and was largely outstanding in a 6-2 win, but it turned out that the call-up had to do with Wedgwood going up to fill in for Carter Hutton, who had that injury, but it was just a little weird that Jonas Johansson was called up to replace him and was the one who got to play. He also played in their 2-1 win over Providence on Friday, but Wilcox played in the Amherst's 4-3 win in Syracuse. Other news, Dalton Smith is currently sitting out, um, and he'll sit out tonight in their game against Binghamton on a one-game suspension. He flattened Jacob Zorabil on the boards against the Providence Bruins and has a one-game suspension. Not really something to be proud about. It's, it's, it's the right decision. Fun news for the Amex fans is that they'll get to watch Matt Hunwick for a couple of games. He's on a conditioning stint for one or two games, uh, starting tonight, actually. I think I'm going to head to the game tonight, and I'm excited to see how the guys are doing. It's been a minute since I've been to a game. They have a home-and-home this weekend against Cleveland, who have actually been quite good this season to round out the week. Uh, Moving on to around town, a few bits of news that we're a little late on. It's been a while since we've put out an episode Um, But the Pittsburgh Penguins have finally made their move with Daniel Sprong. We talked about Sprong a couple episodes ago and how he seemed to be the item on the chopping block for the Penguins. Um, He was traded for Marcus Peterson of the Anaheim Ducks. And it's really a, even though I think we're talking about players who are the same age, Marcus Peterson is a defenseman and it's really a, a future traded for a present. This I mean, Sprong is a player who could be very good for a long time. Uh, largely, I believe Peterson is regarded as okay. And I think this is, you know, trading a future. It's one of their tradable assets to get something that solves a Penguins problem right now. They're still struggling on the defensive end, and this is someone who can come in and possibly help for that. We've also covered a lot of injury news that we've kind of hit as we've gone through the previews, but the other one that I think is just kind of accompanying that that's kind of fun is that the Tom Wilson and Ryan Reeves feud is added again. Um, Reeves clocked Wilson as we talked about. He's sidelined with a concussion. The hit wasn't that bad. I believe Reeves was thrown out of the game. It was targeting, um, but I don't I, I don't want to jump far enough to say that it is anywhere near as brutal as some of the hits that Tom Wilson has been throwing around in the last couple of months or you know the last career that he's had but it's an interesting feud to watch unfortunately I believe it's over the Knights and Capitals have both played each other twice this season so we're probably not going to see it anytime soon the biggest news to talk about is that we will be welcoming the 32nd team to the league Seattle is going to come to town in 21-22, they will join the Pacific Division, which will slide Arizona to the Central Division, which I feel like is a little cruel on Arizona. I mean, Arizona's been bad for a long time, and now, just as the Pacific Division is starting to turn over with the Sharks getting really old and even struggling while they're in their window, the Kings rebuilding, the Ducks getting really old, the Oilers being perennial strugglers now they move into the central which is a powerhouse and I think that's a little harsh on Arizona but moving back to Seattle it was thought that they would join in 2021 but the narrative talked about was that they wanted to make sure that their stadium would be done before they started playing they didn't want to start a season without a stadium it would would have been possible for them to do but it's not something they wanted to entertain they couldn't guarantee that they could have the stadium done in 2021 They haven't officially announced what their name will be. They also haven't worked out what AHL affiliates will look like. Um, But we can, it's years away, but we can start talking about who we think is going to get picked up off the Sabres in the expansion draft. And we can start making those mock items and talking about that. Um, We'll talk about that at some point in this show, I'm I'm absolutely certain. But it's kind of ridiculous to talk about it now, considering that I I think only like four or five players will be even under contract for the Sabres uh, in 2021, or sorry, 21-22. So we'll talk about that later. But exciting news that we're going to have an even number of teams in the league again. We have mostly talked about our mailbag items throughout the episode. Um, There was one other item that was tweeted in that I forgot to mention after the Philly game. 
Um, there was a tweet that I got, and I'm going to look it up because I don't want to leave you out, my friend. It was from Doug on Twitter, and he tweeted me after the Philly game, what the hell was that third period? Secondary scoring, question mark. I'd like to see one shift worth a damn. And I think all of those are items that I certainly agree with. But he did have one that I want to talk about. He tweeted also, goalie change, you think? And I think this was in regards to the fact that Allmark um, was on the receiving end of four goals in the third period and was never pulled. And we talked about this a little bit back and forth on Twitter. And I, I, I think really what the reasoning was was that it was Scott Wedgwood on the bench and not Carter Hutton. And we've seen the effects of, you know, letting Allmark sit down and bringing Carter Hutton in and that giving a massive spark to the team. I don't know that you're getting that spark out of a guy who has just been okay in the AHL. He's, he's a solid goaltender, Scott Wedgwood, but he, he, I don't know that, you know, decreasing your caliber of goaltender when you need a spark in a team is necessarily exactly what you want to do, especially putting in a goaltender who hasn't played with these guys since a preseason game against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Um, so I, I think I, I agree. I would have liked to see a change there. I don't know that goaltending really would have been what would have gotten it for you. I, I actually meant to talk about that question, Doug. I apologize during the Philly recap, but we'll drop it in right there. Remember, my friends, you can uh, tweet us in at ICGAW is our handle. That's at ICGAW. You can also email us at ICGAWpod at gmail.com. All of that information will be in the show notes. That will just about wrap things up for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining in and listening. If you've enjoyed the day's show, uh, we would so appreciate it if you would like and subscribe and drop us a five-star review on iTunes. Tell your friends to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. We'll be coming at you next week as we recap this tough away outing against D.C., and the Bruins will be coming at you next week. In the meantime, keep those heads up, my friends. It might not get much better, but remember, it can't get any worse. We'll see you guys soon. Dick in to Oposo. Oposo hanging on to it back at the point. Oposo drops it off in the corner to Eichel. Eichel buzzing around. Eichel in the center.